right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode and another season of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. So a brief overview of this evening's episode will include the intros, hellos, and followed by a triple junction and new news. Our main discussion will dive into all things ocean pollution and microplastics with a special guest. Between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute, and before signing off, we will close things out with another That Freaking Rocks. A huge thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs each week, both to our new listeners and to our returning listeners alike. If you would like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, whether you are answer oh, answers you are wanting answered, <laughs> if you fancy being a guest, or just to tell us about all all the times we have misspoke you can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com or you can find us on instagram at geology on the rocks podcast it looks like things are squared away over here mr baggins so without further ado i am your host james the geologist and i'm brian oh you do not have a good connection sir but this is geology Uh-oh. on the rocks right <laughs> is it better right here though a little bit a little bit but it, we'll figure it out so hey man season three okay. we're back yeah we made it woohoo <laughs> dude you're t- your connection <laughs> you're I starting off to move I don't, I don't know what's going on That's okay really weird. how's your week been great oh brian 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 oh brian. my gosh why is it this time that we're having trouble i don't so, know <laughs> you know what, I'll just, it's, it's your guest. It has to be the guest. Yeah, we started out. You know, I know we just, you know, we had a few little little trips and falls, so it wouldn't be the you know the full on feature if we didn't have a few of these. But. Well, yeah, but anyways, yeah. So today we have a guest with us, Dr. Dale Simpson. He joins us again. He was our guest last season, or no, season one. Man, time flies. So he's an American anthropological archaeologist who has centered most of his research on Polynesian culture. More specifically, his research really focused on the ancient interactions on the island of Rapa Nui, or Easter Island. So his PhD documented the movement of basalts from different geological sources, and he was also the host of the History Channel's Found, and he also contributed to Science Channel's What on Earth. He's in his it's 12th year now, right, at the College of DuPage? Yes, sir. 12, 12. Happy year. Let 12, me tell you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Look, we have even have applause for you this time. <laughs> <laughs> moving on up, moving on up. This is outstanding. Thank you, thank you both for uh, having me back. That's right. I'm the first guest. She's the first, second time guest. So, yes. you know, I, I'm pioneering. So this is this is a great opportunity. And congratulations to the both of you. You know, in today's day and age, with so much content to send out, two solid seasons of quality content that's, that's interesting, that's awesome, that's on the rock. Ooh. You know, I, 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 I so well done, well done. All right. Well, more about you, sir. How have you been? It's been oh, man. almost I, a year. Yeah, it has been. It's been a, quite an interesting year. I mean, obviously, we, we don't have to go anything down the pandemic line, but there there are, there are silver linings of, of anything, and, and humans learn how to adapt and, and move forward, and I've just been productive in some other stuff. I got back home from the island, you know, now I've been, been home for the whole time, which has been great. Check back in and work on these projects. We've been working at a, a collection of a local museum in Warrenville called the Mac Lithic Collection, and basically pieces of, you know, of sort of lithics or stone tools, as we okay. call them in archaeology, yeah. and we have them sort of verify. We, we did, a, we did sort of just a temporal analysis on them. Some of them go back about ten thousand years. So it was it was a, a huge finding just for my town of you know fourteen fifteen thousand people to realize that First Nation group and the ancestors of the First Nation groups of today, like in my area of Illinois, the Potawatomi, they have ancestors that extend back ten thousand years. So. 
you know, every time that a door closes, as you know, windows, you know, open up, you just got to open back the door up and walk through and, and find new things to do. So I, I always like the idea that someone intelligent and motivated is never bored. Yeah, uh, and I something as simple as that. As simple as that. But that's, that's where we're, we're sitting. And I'm really looking forward to today's topic. It's something very important as a sort of a micro and macrocosm, as you guys will sort of talk about. And yes. I just, I really want to highlight why I'm not renewing. You know, I think that there's sort of an example of how we can work our way out of this and perhaps rethink how we see anthropogenic marine debris or AMD, which I know we'll talk a lot about today. Yeah. And then like, I know that what I guess like you, you give it like this different dimension kind of for us, because whereas we, I mean, I've been landlocked, like I haven't really gotten to see the, I guess the overall effects of this, but you've really gotten to witness, I guess, all of like actually, you know, what you see in the the research and the literature and the news stories and all of that. So I'm, I'm excited to get into all of that. And then, cool. um, so Brian, are you there? I, I hope I'm here. Oh, I can hear you. You're a lot clearer okay, now. All right. <laughs> Woo, welcome, Brian, to the show. Yeah. <laughs> Your yeah. podcast. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> that was highly annoying. I'm sorry. Dude, yeah. you sound way better. I'm not going to lie. Excellent. Um, well, James, do we want to get into the new news? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd right. say you lead it off there for us. All right. So I have a really cool one. They've discovered a new, a new, a newly discovered pterosaur, and they're coining the name Monkey Dactyl. Oh. And the reason is because it was one of the, like, if not the oldest creature known to have opposable thumbs. And what we know about organisms that have that capability is they primarily use that to climb trees. Yes. And so this, it was a Jurassic Age dinosaur, winged reptile, I apologize, that they found its remains in this one stratigraphic column and they used CT scans okay. to create a 3D rendering of the fossil and they found that in both limbs they had the opposable thumbs. So Whoa. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, because I mean, that's not usually, I mean, I guess, yeah, no, I, I don't even know where to to go over there. So they call it the, you said the monkey dactyl? That That is it. Uh, I think the official name is Kung Pengocopterus Antipalacticus. Oh, I don't. Th those are fancy <laughs> yeah. words that I don't. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's cool. And then, so it's Jurassic in age. Yeah. Okay. So that was during, not during the time of Tyrannosaurus Rex. No. No, because that yeah. was Cretaceous. I get all confused. <laughs> like I know, I know. What is it? Uh, the Cretate? No, no, no. Triassic, Jurassic. I mean, we, we didn't live then, so it's okay. Yeah. Don't worry no. about it. <laughs> well, then my story comes to. It's going to be related to um, kind of our discussion today, and it's uh, this mystery solved. So, marine biologists they were out off the coast of Los Angeles. There was this increase. What they've been noticing over you know the past 10, 20 years is that a, a an extremely high percentage of sea lions were getting cancer. The 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 mystery History was actually just recently solved, and it kind of highlights the the issue what we were talking what we're going to be talking about today, and that's marine pollution. The chemical dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, or DDT, as we know it, was invented in the 1939s, and it was I, we know it was used as a pesticide for helping to protect people from insect-borne diseases like malaria. So protection from the chemicals like it really ramped up, I think, after World War II, and it became the 
uh, the the primary way that we would go about for spraying crops and overcrowded beaches to eliminate mosquitoes and such pests as that. So the, the largest DDT manufacturing actually in the U.S. was known as Montrose Chemical Corporation. I don't know if y'all have heard anything about this in the news, but from 1947 to, I think, 1982, it was just pumping out and distributing this uh, really toxic chemical, DDT, worldwide. But as a result, the, the, the production, you know, I guess with anything, there's a byproduct mix of toxic sludge made up of petrochemicals, DDT, and this other, I guess, polymer, or not, I don't know what it is, a polychlorinated biphenyls, like the PCBs, were a byproduct, mm -hmm. right? For decades, the, the hazardous waste was disposed of in two primary ways. So some of the pollution was just dumped into storm drains in the sewer system, which then was pumped out to sea through um, outflow pipes. And then, oh, and then the other way, I think, yeah, was just off, I, I, I guess, a more closer near shore area that they used. Two miles offshore, it was a city of Rancho Palos Verdes. So the, the rest of the waste was disposed of in barrels, which were loaded onto barges and then floated 10 to 15 miles offshore to waste dumping sites off the Catalina Island, then just jettisoned into the ocean. So unlike the deep water dumping sites, the, the shallow toxic site called uh, the Palo Verde Shelf, which is this uh, two mile stretch of beach off Rancho Palos Verdes in 1990, in, in 96 was actually declared a super fun cleanup site by the EPA. And then there, there used then there was like this overall um, Montrose was sued and settled for $140 million. So that doesn't seem like much, but most of that money has been used to try to restore contaminated sites, blah, 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 blah. Oh. In December, there was actually a, a team published a 30 year study on sea lions that were finding that 25% of these adult sea lions have cancer. And despite the fact that the toxic barrels were dumped in the 40s, 50s, 60s, their existence just became common knowledge this past fall when the Los Angeles Times published a feature that, of the discovery that, that it actually dates back to 2011 when researchers first started noticing this, but the results weren't published until 2019. But anyways... Uh -huh. In all cases of cancer, sea lions had high elevated levels of DDTs and PCBs in their blubber. So the theory goes that the contaminants weaken the body's immune system, making the viruses more effective. And it may seem logical that the sea lion contamination is coming from the polluted sites that are shallow. You know, I, th I think it would be unethical, as I guess, as researchers to say that it's definitely coming from this, right? Because I guess they don't know the full extent of the, the super offshore DDT, right? Making yeah. its way up the food chain. So they, it's going to require more research. But the, the fact that, you know, these dump sites in the 40s, 50s, 60s, they didn't even know that they were actually there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what gets uncovered, what, what they would do, you know, mid-1900s. A lot of, like, even munitions and stuff, we're still uncovering <laughs> yeah. all, all of the waste that's out there. It's pretty scary stuff. Dude, yeah. Why? So I would think I, I would think all that sludge, though, you know, that's the reason why we have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because, <laughs> exactly because all that sludge went down in there and found Splinter, Michelangelo, and the rest. Yes. But when you're talking about DDT, you know, that was one of the first ecological books I ever read was Silent I had to read that inside one of my, I think, intro ecology classes at the University of Manitoba. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that was that was Rachel Carson's book just about, you know, how DDT was when you have a silent meadow, it, it shows the biodiversity has definitely decreased. Uh, where at one time before DDT was being sprayed, you had this huge biodiversity, multiple trophic levels down from keystone predators down to, you know, the, the smallest little moths and, and gnats and everything that was needed in this larger food web. 
while DDT is so effective that it can infiltrate and then biomagnify itself in different levels. So while the scientist in me says, yes, you need more more testing, more evidence, there seems to be a little bit of a smoking gun if you're going to have that high of a DDT and you know that that dump site's so close. So at least that's a no hypothesis right there that they can can work from. And that would be the better science of it, you know? Yeah. So get this. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm currently in the process of getting my PhD. Um, and in my policy study class, like I'm, I'm doing a a policy brief right now that, uh, I'm trying to, I guess we're, we're highlighting uh, policy and lack thereof. Anyways, mine that I focused on is environmental and sustainability, I guess, policy in education, higher education, because mine doesn't have any. But I, I go back to that, the fact that you wrote like the, the that, that book you were talking about in the 90s, actually, that there was this, what's his name? Uh, and it, it, there, there was a book that tried to kind of, I guess, subdue, I guess, previous, not, it, it was called Facts, Not Fear, right? And, okay. it, and, mm-hmm. it, and it, the whole idea, like, and why I, I thought it was interesting that you brought it up, because they used this in the 90s to kind of, uh, I guess, counterbalance the the narrative that there was any real environmental issues <laughs> so like we're fighting we're, it's, it's like I, I feel like it's it's this battle that we're that we're fighting it's going it's like like a two-edged sword like like you uh, anyways anyways i don't i don't I yeah. to derail but it no it, I, I think that's a good point like and dale bringing up like the smoking gun like yeah we do need to investigate further but if we if we know there's some sort of correlation we don't pause it for 10 years and then like do something about it you know time is not on our side usually and so we when we're dealing with other organisms that have every right to be here just the same as us we don't just hold off on like doing counter measures or remediation just because we need another study Um, at least on like government level where i work we we don't see a big major structural defect even though we may not know exactly what's wrong we're going to start remediation to some degree to save lives what else was i going to say i was going to say something to the effect that but i mean i i feel like it's crazy that we we're we have these people that are denying it denying it denying it right so i think in i was just i was reading abstracts and and it's come to the consensus that that we're converging on 100% of our anthropogenic global warming is being like so people who research it researchers are at at, at this convergence of almost 100% right so i think it was four people out of 69,406 authors four kind of were like eh maybe not but we have <laughs> Get this right. So we have the people making the rules and establishing policies with when it comes to all of this. 139 still deny like there's anything wrong with the climate or there's nothing that we as humans are really affecting any of this in the U.S. You know, our, wow. our current Congress, okay. 139 of them are skeptics. Or I wouldn't even call them skeptics because at least skeptics have kind of a anyways. <laughs> yeah. yeah keep going keep going because you're on you're on the you're on the vein there about why you're exactly doing i think this podcast and a larger thing it's it's the better sort of educate i i wish some of those hundred and whatever number was 139 yeah, yeah no and, yeah. And, and, listen to the science a little bit you know and and, and what, what 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 what's been trying to one one of the things that i i get in some of my discussions it's not showing Climate change is, is very difficult. You, one of the things that people talk a lot about is the, the loss of biodiversity, which is evident, you know, and then you'll, you'll get the, sure, we are still discovering 
species daily basis. You know, at one of my, I was going to think about a new piece, you know, even in Rapa Nui, they were finding sort of a new crustacean creature that had not been documented. Then you have the whole, the old Yeti crab that was found by a hot vent uh-huh. to the north mm-hmm. of Rapa Nui. So, I mean, discoveries are still there, but we can, we can easily see a huge loss of speciation mm-hmm. and these more effective species are going to live, these coyote species, they, they learn a way to, to adapt, to survive, to do anything they can. But where you have huge webs of biodiversity, you're seeing many rungs of the net slowly erasing. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, and that's through so many anthropogenic activities from, you know, and the big one too, now pharmaceuticals, mm. uh, you know, mining, the, the classic logging and fishing, the, the earlier prime sort of primary sources, but now the pharmaceutical and mining, you know, these are, these are big buck industries. And yeah, I, I think it's important that we, we, we talk to our government about that, especially us as scientists who want outreach and want our, you know, we're, we're a stakeholder as well. We're constituent. We want our concerns listened to. We just have to be very clever in, in how we pitch our stuff. You know, yeah. that's why I wish we had, we had more spokespeople like us out there doing it. But Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, like you're an educator as well. So if we have those policies in place, I feel like if if just we could do something other than, I don't know, if we can incorporate it into the curriculum and make it more relatable to all aspects, kind of how sure. uh, if, if you go the other way with it, with, I guess, the conservatives and I guess more of the Neil, they're like, oh, do all about the economy, make it more economy based. Like, right. So they try to interject the economy into our things. Always. So why can't we Always. interject? Why, why can't we make it a... a environmental issue on that way so well there's a discussion at least you're making framework right i always say when i used to coach wrestling i always said you know make make suggestions not criticism so obviously oh, yeah the three of us could sit here and just pot shot, you know, issues and uh, where, where there's faults according to our logic and thinking and, and background. But dude, we're doing it. You guys are at episode 26. You get, you know, you're getting the message out and this Woo. is exactly what needs to be done on our, on our hand with the power that we have. Yeah. You know, and that's basically, you know, that's trying what we're doing is to, I guess, create more of a, more of an environmental literacy. Sure. You know, yeah. 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 So yeah. And right. if you're doing environment, I'm doing culture. You know, so and, and data literacy, I work a lot in too. So people can understand when they look at a certain subsection of a collection and you're able to understand percentages and deviations and outliers. And that type of thinking is, is very important to critical thinking. And that's why I argue all the time archaeology is one of the, the great STEM theme fields, really, because if we include art. And I, I feel that there's a lot we can teach through STEM theme and archaeology that helps with, with solving problems. Oh, absolutely. Every day, you know, being in the field, I only have this. I need to make this happen. What do I do? Got to solve the problem. Holy cow, shipment's not coming for two months. Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> How are you going to... I got to break this down. Okay. You know, so I think doing research, being a scientist and being someone who uses the, this deductive, hypodeductive system, it, it really helps solve problems in your daily life. And not just about the rocks, minerals, the artifacts we're looking at. You know what I mean? I I know what you mean, <laughs> but it's and that's and, that, and that's the fight is we're trying to pass that on and articulate that to I guess people that don't really understand the the rigor that goes into it and the the amount of problem solving that goes into it. Yeah, yeah, and thinking of ourselves more less like a hall monitor, more like a guide. You know, that's 
I think, like you said, like no, like less criticism or suggestion. Cause I'll, I've, I've been in conversations in with people and they're like, oh, all you do is just like rip up like what's already there and, and throw people down. And it's like, I've had to learn that on a personal level in conversations just mm-hmm. with friends. But as a scientist, we're not here to belittle people. We need to pick them up and, yeah. and educate them on these issues. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. and then the but, issue that we're going to run in today is what we're going to be talking about is marine pollution in the sense of the anthropogenic marine debris. So, yeah. yeah. So, AMD, the rest of the show, all listeners, when we say AMD, that's exactly what we're talking about because I'm not saying anthropogenic marine debris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right now, bro. So, AMD is the hot topic right now. AMD. <laughs> so, yeah. AMD, what is it? What would how would how are we going to describe it for our our listener out there? Yeah, uh, any detritus sediment that is man-made or man-derived that's floating out. We we're calling it marine, so that makes its way out into the ocean or brackish areas. Yeah, is what I would say. And then, I'm so like, well, that's a simple uh, definition. I think that works. <laughs> You know? <laughs> I think that this is all human-made. We, we think about that. We, anytime we have that idea of anthro, you know, that's the, the good old human. So this is a human-created, we'll call it garbage, if we want to keep it simple, <laughs> right? That just ends up in the ocean. But it has to pass through humans' hands before it enters the water. Yes. It can have multiple via and, and entry points, but so- this is useful classify, you know, like other types of pollution enters the ocean, but that's through natural processes and natural transforms. It's the the past of humans. But it could be non-point as well, right? It could be both from direct pollution or indirect pollution too that is going to be included in this. Yep, exactly. That's that's the way you can think about looking at it. Of of, of how I think about one of the craziest stories, if I can, just to start out. So I'm, I'm from Chicago and we have the museum campus, which is an area that has the field museum, the Aquarium and the Adler Planetarium. Very, fam- very famous, very fun for people out of town when you want to give them like the first day of Chicago experience. Yeah. And in front of the Shed Aquarium, someone has created these awesome exhibits made from AMD, right? Which is microplastics. There's microplastics, there's mesoplastics, there's macroplastics. There's a whole bunch of different grades of AMD. And we use the size to identify its type. Yes. Now you can have AMD that's the size of the houses. And the very common <laughs> one was after the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And basically houses, a complete AMD were entering the water and ending up on the coast of Washington. Oh yeah, that 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 what well, that was in 2011. Whenever that huge tsunami took, yeah, yeah all of that yeah. stuff and what Oregon and Washington were getting, yeah, all sorts of that. That was fun to it to see. The, oh, there's they still are because it's all about the weight and size of it. It's aged, you know, it's, it's aged in archaeology. We call it size graded because the different buoyancy takes certain materials, different amount of time to actually float across the ocean. Yeah. So this group, what it, this, this, this group that created all these big sculptures of penguins and fish, they use smaller pieces of mesoplastic and some microplastics and things that we call pellets that basically are the prime material that become plastic agents. Okay. Mm. Uh, they collected all these things and they made huge animals out of them. And there's this very diagnostic blue microplastic, very common from PVC pipes. It's just this blue plastic that we're all very common with. Yes. When I'm, not, when I'm on Rapa Nui, a friend of mine, we went out, we love to go fishing. We go fishing for this small little 
fish called pieces right off the shore. They're little pan fish. They're unbelievable to eat. Little little bit of uh, lemon, a little bit of salt, man, right on top of your tunuaki or your, your little fire that you got going to your little grill. Well, Sounds one delicious. of the things that the Rapa, it's yeah. so good, so good. One of the things that the Rapa Nui people really much love to eat are what's called the kokoma or the intestines. Okay. And what you have to do is you very carefully after you fillet and, and, and take out the guts and reuse everything for fishing and you use that entire fish, even the bones get reused for a soup, everything, everything gets multiple uses. Well, when you're cleaning out the cocoma, what sometimes has happened is we have found the same blue pieces of plastic that I saw in the exhibit in Chicago. Oh, wow. So, so Rapa Nui is in one part of the ocean in the very far South Pacific. It's off the coast of Chile, about 3,000, well, in, in, in English, it's 2,700 miles. Sorry, I'm going in kilometers oh. there. And then, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, you know, whatever. 30. But the, the point is, is that although Rapa Nui and Chicago are completely isolated from each other, we're still being able to see the effect of AMD in the Pacific Ocean. So, yeah, it's crazy. Um, You're like, oh, I'm mutually, like, there's no way that you could really these two things together yet there we are we see it human there you are and and now it's a worldwide problem you know we see amd in all water columns we actually see it in newly formed arctic ice so yeah. it's getting you know it's, it's, it's being found in the deepest depth i mean it's, mm. it's it's something very very crazy so this is this is a human problem this type of pollution does not have political boundaries no. However, there are more countries that are producing more plastics that end up break down in the process or, or other, you know, a lot of things to our fishing industry. Oh, yeah. And and, and what they're using, though, the, the nets and rope. Yeah. I'll just leave you with this little this little nugget here. You know, when Charles Moore, who's the famous sort of Captain Garbage, who, who really did a lot of work with the Pacific Garbage Patch, his one main study, I think, that was published in 2011, and it's him at it all, you know, they were finding that AM was more abundant than in the oceans at that moment than plankton by a ratio <laughs> of six to one. Wow. We use these things called manta traps. They look like huge manta rays. Yeah. And they have a screen and those, we, we do it certain intervals around and you do it basically every kilometer. You have a break where you clean, you take everything out, you reset in 500 meters and you put another one in there and you, you you try to sample as best you can in different layers of the water column well when they did the majority of the work on the northern garbage patch that's on the northern located the northern gyre i'm sure we'll talk about the gyres mm-hmm. but, um, oh i like gyres six to one <laughs> six to one plank you know amd at that time and that's 2011 yeah so i mean it's so going to be a bit a little bit more I, so those, that's what we're against you know, and then when, when some of the research has been done, you know, we find that 80% of this AMD is, is really coming to land. So that means things like tourism, agriculture, aquaculture is a big one these days because it lets out a lot of old nets and buoys. Industry that just straight pollutes, flooding, big ones like storm surges hurricanes, mm-hmm. tsunamis, and then just basic human assholery <laughs> of littering, dumping, and sewer overfill stuff. That we that That's the stuff we can prevent. And some people are starting to get around it, putting nets and drainage ditches, and there, there's movement around there. But so just some nuggets to start out, you know? You, you're drawing us in. You're drawing us in. Because like, uh, what I want to say, too, when it comes to that, I, it's such a pervasive a problem that we're seeing. And I, and I want to say... Two, with that, I, I know you brought it up, most of all this plastic pollution and just pollution in general is getting into the oceans through rivers. And I want to say that 
10 of the rivers like produce 90% of all the, the plastic entering the ocean. And it, this, this is the study that documents Asian entry points, I believe. And, oh, yeah. You know, it, 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 it is the majority. Now, again, we, we have to be very careful about certain publications, as we know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, you know, that, 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 that we, we, we also produce huge amount of plastic. One thing we do better in the States is we have some, some better incinerators and recycling programs. One issue that Japan and India face and that sort of Asian community is just sheer uh, demography. You know, it's a third of the world's population yeah. in two countries that touch each other. And with the neo-capitalism that we have in this world, you know, there's a lot of byproducts. No, yeah. And and with that, too, I would say like with that is it's one thing to produce it, but how to, I guess, manage it after the fact. And I, and I feel like so if we really wanted to make like this huge difference, we would invest in infrastructure over in these up and coming countries that are just they're, they're trying to figure it out. So they don't really have the means like I, I believe like when it came to what with China and they had that explosion of growth, right? Like their their production just just kept it couldn't keep pace. I'm like it outpaced what they could do with it. So they were just like, well, it's just going to go into the, the, the yeah. river and it's just going to make its way out here. <laughs> right. Well, it, it outpaced their regulation. And we like, even in Indonesia, like we're talking about plastic, but textile, sure. but you can, you can go do Google earth and then fly over Indonesia area. And the water is the red in that because of all the textiles they're producing there. Mm-hmm. And so regulation is really the big thing on, we have a decent setup in the U S but James, I think that's, like maybe that, I don't know what who we talk to about this, but I, I mean, you know, we, we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, that, yeah. now if you're if you're if you're if you're going that high up the, the line and you're going to bring the government in, you know, that's when you're looking for the EPRs. You know, yeah. for extended producer responsibility. That companies as well are also responsible for their how they um, sort of invade their their equipment or their products. That they're also responsible for that. So when it leaves their their area, you know, their their production line until it goes back into the production line. Yeah. You also have, you know, PROs, which are producer responsibility organizations that are are really important to police and make sure companies are, you know, it's outside auditors. And I'll talk about this a little bit more. There's top-down strategies, there's bottom-up strategies, you know, Mm. and I I definitely want to, I want to highlight all those. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean like, because I'm, oh no, I was, because I'm interested in it too, because I I do feel like it is a, it's, it's, it, it, it needs to be a kind of this, this thing that's happening at the same time, because right, it's not when we think of like pollution, it, it, uh, this ocean pollution, right? It, it it needs to come from a global effort, right? But you can't yeah. get the global effort unless you bring it up it at is. the community level. It, it is though, and that's what's interesting. This is very similar to instead of top down, a top down entity, and and there are groups that are are spearheading activity and they're trying to do the best for the oceans, but it just seems local groups are doing better at this. And it makes sense. They have the traditional ecological knowledge. They know when tides come in and out. Yes. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the best at, at defending their island. But as well as I'll make the argument for, a lot of these cleanup efforts are really band-aids for broken arms. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not really, you know, addressing the overall issue of consumption mass consumption, one-off throwaways for convenience, you know, and, and those are, are things that we can talk about. 
one of my, the thing that scares me the most is, is ghost fishing. And I'm, I'm sure you guys are aware of what happens through ghost fishing. Is that where but, they um, turn off their GPS and they just go? No, this is, this is, no, that's another thing. That's, that's, and we'll, we could talk about that too, but this is the loss of professional fishing equipment, uh, equipment that at times will oh. basically be cut off harnesses or they'll be, their lines will be cut from, you know, and some of the biggest offenders are crop, crab and lobster pots. And, and, and what this stuff does is it just slowly, you know, starts to go down the, the ocean bed and it wraps up heaps of animals. Yeah. And, so, oh. and then what happens is they get then the, the nets and ropes get embedded in corals. And then when you have rough seas or you have events, tectonic events, these ropes then become like dental floss and just mm. rip through complete beds of coral. Yeah. So ghost fishing is a real issue. And a lot of NOAA, who, who does a lot of work with microplastics and investigation, one of their biggest Eastern, sort of their Eastern budget is, is help spent on preventing ghost fishing. And it's, it's a real issue. We have documented, I think last year, two, no, 2019 now, 260 individual species have been found wrapped in AMD. That's, 260 uh, individual species have been found with either wrapped around their, their beaks, their, their paws. You know, you've, you've seen fucking, excuse me, you've seen... <laughs> okay. we, we, are, we are way worse than that. Usually. You've seen frogs <laughs> being ripped out of turtles' noses. If you ever want to see, the, I mean, the worst of seeing that, the AMD attacking animals, and that, and that, that you have ingestion, you have entanglement, so there's different terms that we use. Mm-hmm. Ingestion is different compared to the entanglement issue, so you have different AMD attacking in different fronts. The horrible one is Bird Island, Plastic Burst, Midway Island. Oh, yeah, is that uh, where, the, yeah, where they starve? Because yeah. basically they ingest so much that they, they just can't mm-hmm. eat, it doesn't digest, and then they starve? Oh. Yep, they starve, yeah. and then you see, you know, there's the classic, I think this won the Nat Geo Award this year or last year of the one... It looks like it's a sooty tern or tern species, and it's on this beach that's sprinkled in colors with micro and mesoplastic, and this bird is puking plastic inside the mouth of its offspring. Uh. Uh, and, and right there, that is biomagnification on a huge level because it's not just in small particles anymore. It's actual chunks. Yeah. So in the short, you know, before I'm get all positive, I just want to say like, you've seen that Japanese picture of that very famous Japanese painting of a tsunami. Well, someone reincorporated and put AMD all in the inside and in Japanese. Our oceans are sick. Yeah, they, yeah. I would say so. <laughs> they're, they're sick and they're not dead. This is, as we've learned anything from Mother Nature, she's resilient. We, we have uniformitarianism every day. It, 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 she can reborn herself. This is this is true, but it's obviously us that that is, is making making them sick. But I, I have hope. I do. I, I see what happens in Rapa Nui and other agencies that are working. To uh, and I when I give this lecture, I have a huge turtle, especially when the little kids. And I say, you guys give me hope. Yes. You know, you, you guys, when yeah. we go clean up, you guys make me excited because you're dealing with a problem that's not even yours. So, oh, you know, it's, yeah, you that's, know, that's the problem is they're going to be dealing with this for, for times to come. What, what's, what's, speaking of turtles, what's that oldest turtle? It's, it's, oh, it's from like the Seychelles, seashells. It's like yeah, 100, yeah, no, they, 198 yeah. years old. I mean, Polynesians, you know, that's, that's, we go on a side nugget. I, I've been one of, one of my little pet projects 
literally a turtle project, is I've been arguing now that Polynesians also use turtles to find islands, um, yeah. to, hmm. especially to go back because they have biomagnetics in their brain. Sea turtles would have been the best sea captain you could have had with you because female turtles have to return to the island every year. Yes. Right. She, she knows so Polynesians could follow these huge waves of green and sea turtles and, and, and the whole story. And we actually have a, a moai, a stone statue on Rapa Nui, that has a European ship on its belly. Very interesting. It's called Kokona Roa, very famous moai. But anchoring this huge European boat is a turtle. And we were arguing for years that tur- just like the Polynesians were maybe brought to islands by turtles, when the, the Rapa Nui people saw these huge boats and they lifted up the anchor, the Rapa Nui people thought it was a turtle guiding them to this island. So mm. like turtles are just super, super important, you know, and it's so sad to see them wrapped up in nets, see them wrapped you know, a hook stuck in their beak and, you know, or a straw in their nose. And so anytime I, I, I have the chance to avoid single-use plastic, it's those images that flash onto my mind. I'll tell you the one. Yeah, like the one that imprinted on me was, it, and, I, and, I, and it wasn't like anything like terrible, but it was it was a picture of a seahorse. And you know how they, they usually use like driftwood yeah. and debris to float sure. along. But it, it, it was uh, this this picture, I think he was a, a Chilean uh, photographer, but yeah. he took a picture and, yeah. and it, it, its tail was wrapped around a Q-tip. And I was a just Q-tip. like, and, wow. I, and I was just like, man, th- I mean, I don't know why that, that one really just like it imprinted a, like a lasting impression on me, just how invasive and pervasive like this problem yeah. is. So then, well, that, well, oh, go ahead. Yeah. And think about it, you find it in your food source, you know, that's, that's one <laughs> way, you know, think about it as it gets closer to your food sources. And that's one thing we worry about on Rapa Nui. And we can talk a little bit about that. Just the chemicals that these AMDs absorb when they're in the water as they pass through other types of, of pollution. And these are vessels to absorb. They're also really good. This AMD, one of the things that it does, it can bring invasive species in the new areas. Yeah. So we've had yeah. you know, huge pieces, you know, maybe some a, a fishing boat from New Zealand chucks out its big bin and it passes through the current. You can have a warm, a warm weather uh, barnacle or a warm water, you know, urchin or something that sticks onto that. And then it moves its way into a new island and could have detrimental effects to the ecology itself. Yeah, because so it, okay, so what you're basically saying is like, so this plastic will drop the barnacles on it, and then just it since it's less, I mean, like it'll just float into this new species, and then or not species, but new area and invade. New area. Yeah, and, it, and it's just an invasive species, so they call these tagalong, right? Tagalong mm-hmm. species, and and a lot of studies have been shown how they're you know moving other animals and little barnacles into areas that shouldn't have that yeah but because the plastic gives them that vehicle you know how mother nature works you know someone's going to take advantage and be that sort of species that's that's going to go so there's a a lot against us here but there's a lot of positivity there's so many new programs if you haven't checked it out look at something called race for water or five dyers the ocean conservancy ocean cleanup there's a book called turning the tide on plastic by a a great a great author lucy deagle published in 2016 and it's a problem that's well transmitted. We, we know the cause and effect to something we can solve as human beings. And there's actually mm-hmm. an ample amount of publications about them. Yes. And I would definitely say in the last 10 years, we've seen a huge increase in people with a lot of statistical modeling, doing column sample, water column sampling. So it's, it's, it's coming around. But it, for, for your viewers out there, if you want to go a little one step further, you know, the, the third Saturday in September is called International Coastal Cleanup Day. Third Saturday. And 
I'm going to write that the down. Third, yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> September has been designated. And, and this is, goes back to your point about it's sometimes hard one top-down entity to make. Because you got to standardize protocol about these. Because if you want to study them, you have to know what you're taking up, what's the area you're investigating. So that's why I'm really, I hope we can get moving and start talking about this research on Rapa Nui. Because I use archaeology to better understand AMD and its distribution landscape. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I've got a PhD in the field and I'm actually in, I'm studying more contemporary garbage. I mean, archaeologists, we're <laughs> garbage hunters. We yeah. look for trash. We're yeah. super trashy. <laughs> <laughs> in, this, in this case, I'm super trashy with plastic, man. I'm getting down, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're living in these different time ages and someone says, oh, you know, we've, we've, we've moved out of the Holocene. Now we're in the Anthropocene. Well, mm-hmm. someone made the quote, we're in the, actually, it's not the Anthropocene, it's the Plasticine. Yeah, I mean, that's so dominant in this bit. But to go back to this international Coastal Cleanup Day, I just wanted to highlight the top 10 elements that were found. This research was done just calculating groups that had registered and then counted their remains and then uploaded it to a larger database. And I, I just curious, what do you think the number one AMD of the world is? And it's a very easy one. Um, uh, are, are you talking about no, like... No, 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 no cheating. Don't be, don't be Googling it. No, <laughs> the machine. no I was just going to say, just, are, are you talking about like plastic? That? No, an AMD AMD doesn't have to be plastic. AMD could be wood. It could be glass. Okay, so I would. Uh, I would say bottle cap. Uh, <laughs> or hey, bottle cap. So that's the answer. I'll give you what your your top five. So cigarette not bad. You have one. Boom! Nailed it. That's the number. Oh, is it really? Wow. That's the number one AMD of the world is cigarette butts. So Get out of really here. Want to, if you want to curb <laughs> AMD, I tell this. This is I tell all this is like my big line, and I'll bust it out early. I usually say with Ben, I say, "Don't be a butthead and contribute." <laughs> to AMD. There, there you go. Line. Don't be a butthead. You know, oh. if you're going to smoke, find the proper receptacle because that is definitely a very one-off. I mean, it is the epitome of a one-off product, a cigarette. It is the yeah. Like, it is. The the number one thing it is a one-off that goes straight into the ground and these filters they, that's the big killer because mm. you know it absorbs twenty-eight thousand different types of carcinogenic material yeah. and so, so yeah. i'll just look at the list really quickly so you're right number one exactly is cigarette butts wow number two surprisingly was candy and like candy wrappers and small wrappers mm. of, of snacks okay um then four is water bottles five is plastic bags or excuse me, four plastic bags, five with bottle top or, you know, pop top. Six is going to be plastic utensils, the classic knife, fork, a spoon, a straws, bottles, cans, and finally we have another type of bag. So you can imagine just if yeah. all of that revolves around our fat asses. Yeah, and just normal the- American household stuff. <laughs> that, that's we, we use and we, we destroy. So yeah. we've identified our enemy. We understand microplastics. We understand about the microfilaments in our clothes. Oh, and yeah. also, we're getting better at it. And I, I'll, I'll say this nugget. All of this AMD, and I learned this in my undergraduate career at the University of Manitoba in Canada. I took a, an environmental ecology technology class, and it was interesting. It was a dual class with the engineers. So it's like the meeting of the minds between the gears who studied on the other end of the campus and these anthropologists. But it was a really cool class because we sort of looked at these problems facing society using sort of anthro and engineer lenses. Well, in, in short, what, what, what we find is that you have the tragedy of the common, right? The classic mm-hmm. story that the classic ecological 1980 or 64 publication by Hardin that groups 
that economically benefit usually don't pay the environmental cost. No, no, I have to repeat that again. Yeah. It, people that reap the benefits of ecological, of, excuse me, economic benefits, that reap economic benefits, rarely pay the ecological or environmental cost. So what we see with this list of materials is exactly that. Those individuals making money on all of that are not paying one environmental cost. No. And that's what we have to rethink. And we'll, we'll talk a, a little bit about that. You know, we have time, but you know, how can you do that through the seven, seven R's? It's no longer recycle, reduce, reuse. We now have seven of them. So I want to talk about that sort of at the end of the show. What are the seven things you can do every day to, to keep it going? Well, then, Dale, I yeah. ask you this for my, <laughs> I guess, anthropology or that, that word, <laughs> an anthropological kind of human interaction that that you say that is that they don't pay their dues but i feel like in society too the people in charge you know right they 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 feel like they don't that they're they're better not not to say like oh i'm better than you but they i I do feel like that they have like this mentality is that they're better than them and they don't have to do it even though that they've relied on all of this to get where they're at if that makes sense yeah yeah i I hear you it's hard because here i am you know i still on a daily basis i think about how much uh, here i am preaching saying you need to do this but it's even hard for me to break away from that culture yeah you know because I, I i try to do things in bold i try to break down try to reuse try you know i try to watch purchases on new stuff the conscious every time i hear a beef at the grocery store i'm very conscious what does that beef mean yeah and i yeah. think we, we've got to go back to just you know it's not just a one and doneer you have to think how I'm, I'm going to be using this stuff but anthropologically because it's a problem based on human patterns we can't always look for technological solutions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on, on Rapa Nui, the, the Race for Water, which is a Swiss company from Switzerland, they're they're very intelligent. They created the the boat that is only run on non-renewables or, or, or renewable energy, excuse me. And what they created in multiple places, they floated their boat all throughout the Pacific and set up incinerators. Oh, nice. Because what, what AMD is, is resources out of place. In mm. 50 years, we're going to know how to reuse these in our incinerators. And I had this one crazy kid on Rapa Nui said to me, he's like, profe, you know, professor, we're going to wear suit. You're going to wear this suit that you basically use the language you piss and shit in that gives you heat <laughs> and energy. And then a side compartment you open up and you'll throw in 15 or 16 little micro beads of plastic. And you'll wear this little generator on your chest or something, and it'll keep you warm. And and I was like, "Gosh, that dude. that's a futuristic, dude, right there." We need, yeah, that we guy. need that guy needs to go up somewhere <laughs> really high. Right <laughs> <laughs> like, go straight there. But the point was, is that we need to realize that we can reuse this material. And I can bring up an example from archaeology where ceramics would have been broken and they would have been reused in another process of firing or clay mounts or leaks when they add other pieces to it. Uh-huh. So humans have been recycling for a very long time, but now we have to do it because maybe our waterways are depending on it. Oh, yeah. So those are things always to keep in mind. You know, this is resources out of place. Plastic pollution is about the tragedy of the commons and who actually makes money off this ecological pollution. It's understanding that AMD is a problem, but there's hope. Uh, yeah. And the way that, you know, I, I let you guys talk and get in the a way that I want to show that there's hope is my argument that I think the contemporary Rapa Nui people from Easter Island are really a case study for the world to look at for us to better understand how we deal with AMD. Because they're the culture that, and our studies have shown 
they produce 15% of their own AMD. And we've documented that through different excavations and cleanups. But that still means that 85% of the AMD is not there. Yeah. So someone yeah. is economically <laughs> making off that, but the Rapanui people are paying the cost. Yeah. So and, that's, 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 that's deep shit right there. Yeah. And like, it's not like once we have the, the culture of out of sight, out of mind, but um, I wanted to kind of touch on plastic. Research has suggested that all plastic that has entered the ocean is actually still there from the beginning of making plastics. And we were like, oh, we have biodegradable plastics now. That's really meant for warming conditions in landfills. So cooler ocean temps, they're not going to break it down to where it's biodegradable. So it's anything that makes it out there is going to stay there and wreak havoc in whatever way it can. Um, Hold up. So it's not just the cold boss. What happens in the Pacific is you have huge heat up and cool down. All right. So what's happening a lot of times this plastic, it it basically breaks down into its smallest chemical component where it can no longer be broken down and it's almost a nurdle or a pellet. It looks like like. they can get down to like the, the, like the nanoparticles too. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a nanoplastic. So that's nano debris. And and that, and that's Mm -hmm. the most common of that is some of those, the fibers. Right. Yeah. And and people, people think of like the, the trash debris of those huge shires out there, but um, I was reading a paper yesterday about this and it, most of it is you can't see with the naked eye like it is micro or, or nano level mm-hmm. and it's just it um, spans acres out there in the oceans and it, what it, like it, the cleanup on that would be really difficult because it's like how do we sure. how do we quantify it where do, well, where do we start yeah and there's a lot of projects that are working on that and the, the ocean conservatory that's a really famous one they've got their big the biggest ocean cleanup with their big tube that they've been practicing and the, the person person or the group that can actually like the, the race for water, anyone that can collect and clean this material, you, you have nurdles or, or pellets that the next stage to create more stuff. So just like my ceramic example, they can easily, once we figure it out mm-hmm. and we stop seeing it as garbage and see it as a resource, that will, that will be a transformation for us. So we might have like, we had, we had different revolutions of humans. We had the mental revolution, the stone tool revolution, the agricultural revolution, and now we're going to have a plastic revolution. Man, um, it, it needs to come sooner wow. than later. Yeah. But yeah. that is, that is hopeful though. Like I, I didn't think of it in that way that we could harness this. Instead so, of yeah. just, and and that's why we need that smart kid that's with the, the piss and shit suit. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't have a better situation. Let's let's let the youth think about the problem, see the problem, and, and go for it. Now, we had talked a little bit before filming or shooting this. You know, there, there's an individual on Rapa Nui who passed, and I, I dedicate this next section to her. Her name is her name was Mama Pidu. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I was watching yeah. one of your talks about how she kind of led the way for these cleanup efforts, right? I'll let, I'll let you. Yeah. No, that's good. Thanks. Thanks for watching that. That's great. I have talked a little bit about this and I've published a little bit about this. I'm waiting for a, a larger impact paper, but it's just, you know, classes and everything. Semesters come to end and I've got some filming coming up. But in short, you know, Mama Pidu, she, she passed two years ago and uh, she cleaned up the oceans and the land because she thought that was the thing to do. And Mama Pidu also had a program before she, uh, you know, would, would go out in the morning. She'd also try to track down Rapa Nui artifacts that were found throughout the world. And she actually traveled quite extensively trying to find these pieces of her culture that were brought to museums in Germany and the United States and Russia and Chile. But she ended up marrying or was together with a little, a little French man. And they really 
revolutionized this idea of cleaning up the oceans for the future. And she led so many cleanups, but it wasn't until our environmental group that we call Ka'ara, which in Rapa Nui means wake up, we're called Ka'ara Environmental Group, we started to quantify what we were finding. And that's a huge step. You know, that's a very huge step, right? You don't know what you don't know, right? Boom. Well said. And and we, we, we can we can observe that these things were coming, we can see the quantities, but we didn't know what time of year was it more prevalent? What what where where on the island is it more dangerous or, or, or under under or at larger risk? Yeah. So we started to ask all these like more research based questions instead of the typical I'm cleaning this up because it's the right thing to do attitude of Mama Peter. Yeah. So we had to bridge that gap and understand that she gave us the spiritual sort of motivation, but it's the band up for the band aid for the broken arm situation. We can keep cleaning this up and we'll, we'll never clean it up if we don't stop the source. Yes. It's good to build the consciousness. So we, with Ka'ara, we did a cleanups and they've been, I think since our cleanup that was in 2014, there's been over 20 cleanups since that event. That's amazing. So mm. the community itself said, we're stepping up in this. And we've had everyone from five-year-old kids to 80-year-old women. We, we've we brought the community, we've brought different entities together. Rapa Nui is a very mixed place. You have a Chilean entity, you have the Rapa Nui, you have all these different entities. Well, we brought firemen together and the Marines together and the ancient council together and the kids' schools together. So this is, again, is going, this is a bottom-up strategy. Yeah, We're not no. getting anything. You know, and, that, and that's an important distinction. I really want to highlight what is your, what, how are you trying to make it better? To top down or to bottom up? No. Yeah, it, exactly. And I, and I, and again, I feel like it's that I, we can't make bigger change unless it does come from the, the local community too. Right. Everyone's got to really buy in. Cause I mean, I, I guess it goes to one of those things is like, like I know Brian and I, we've had this conversation. It's like, what, like, what can we do individually? Like if you think of it as an individual kind of, not that Mama Piru was anything like, I, I feel like she was you know, like y'all's guiding light. It was just the right thing to do. Even though you don't want to keep spinning your wheels, how are you going to make this most impactful to make the most change, which is where you right. came up with Ka'ara. But so like, yeah, on, well, what, yeah. what, how much do you feel like on each one of those cleanups, how much trash did you, do you think that y'all actually like oh, cool. collected? Yeah, well, I got, I got some results right here because I'm a total nerd ball. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll just go right in the results section of the paper. We'll skip all the methodology, but no, the methodology just sort of include us, I like I said, using archaeological techniques to better quantify what we had. I brought out a, a dry sieve and a wet sieve. Basically, a dry sieve is on quarter inch mesh uh, on, a, on a shifter and we just feel like you're geologically shifting and, and sorting through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sand, because we, we have two beaches on the island, and as we'll see, that's where we have a lot of pellets and sort of mesoplastics coming. We also use a, a wet sieve technique because the plastic floats and yeah. all of the rock and sand yeah. sits, so we can just sieve the top of it off. And we've had pretty sophisticated setups, different teams going out, focusing on different tools. Sometimes you got to cut big ropes. Sometimes you need your big strong men to be able to move the rock to get nets out. So we've, it's this sort of specialization of cleanups that you have to do. But 
you know, in 20 minutes, just for an impact factor, we had a large three liter bag, you know, a Ziploc bag. Uh-huh. Uh, it took us with the, uh, with our process of sweeping the beach and sieving, it took 20 minutes for us to fill up one of those three liter bags. Oh, <laughs> um, and that's just uh, like your standard trash bag, right? I guess for visualization. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. no, like the little, the little, um, sorry, this is a one liter bag. I'm just looking at it. One, oh, liter, okay. a, a, a one liter bag, but 20 minutes. And we had filled up six of those in our, in our time. Um, but a lot of a lot of nets and ropes is we'll we'll discuss why. But just yeah. just with some results. I mean, so we this is listing nine events, and they were all not all done by Kaada. We've got other groups like the Sea Shepherd, very famous anti fishing unit. The mm-hmm. Australians came out and visited us uh, and sent us resources and bags and workers. And that was one of our biggest cleanups where we cleaned close to 2,000 kilograms of garbage off the island. In total, we have 4,300 kilograms, so we're almost 10,000 pounds that we've cleaned up off the ocean. Ocean floor, we've done underwater dives, pulling out buoys and nets that are on the ocean floor. We've had to take boats on the inaccessible places by land. But in total, we've had about 400 people participate uh, in, in these completely free, open to the public. We supply, you know, but what we do after every cleanup is we have an umu. And an umu is a Polynesian earth oven. Polynesians cook mm. into the ground. Okay. You know, you like, like, a, like a, you go to Hawaiian, you know, you'll see a pig roast. They weren't always cooked over a spit. Most of the time, large pigs and fish were cooked in the ground in these, these umu. Well, we have an umu for everyone who works. So everyone gets fed, right? Everyone gets honored by saying their name out loud or their ancestor's name. And we usually have sort of mm. a, a, a soothsayer or a priest or a, or a, a you know, what, what we call an iviatua, like a sacred person. And he gives a few words for everyone that's there. So we sort of created this sort of cultural system to these cleanups. The most common bit we collected in total in that those nine cleanups, 9,000 cigarette butts on Easter Island. It's, it's, <laughs> on Easter Island, yeah. we found 9,000 cigarette butts. Now, when we did the cleanup, this was just after the very large Tapati Festival, which is the largest cultural fest- festival on the island the first two weeks of February. Oh, yeah. And uh, so we have, you know, that could be 10,000 people on the island. And those Chilenos love to smoke. So they in <laughs> their huge pack of cigs and, and the Rapanui too. But the, the things that we have the largest amount of weight, so there's different ways to measure. I'm just giving you raw weight. We in the total of the, you know, 10,000 pounds. Some 2,000 pounds of our garbage is completely roped and net. See, yeah, that's... All, ropes, mm-hmm. all huge industrial ropes and net. Nothing that we would use on the island for traditional... Uh, wow. Just huge ass. I'm talking, you know, if you've ever seen a real netting boat, like, you know, these huge inter-ocean... I mean, you're talking rope that have a, a foot diameter. I mean, they are just yeah. these beefy mofros. Yeah. So then, so we, we have nets, ropes, then we, we classify hard plastic, soft plastic, microplastics are its own classification, aluminum, glass, and cigarettes. So there are, you know, we, we, we have a, a classification system. If I was an archaeological site, I would have divided it between bone, stone, lithic, charcoal. Yeah. Again, we're using this sort of technique. And then, but we, what was really cool is when we crunched the numbers and saw over the nine years, because the first one's in 2013, 
And the last one that's on this study is 2018. We actually, because of our cleanup efforts, saw a small decrease in microplastics and a small decrease on the southern coast of larger AMD. So we mm. believe that by the efforts of the town and then when COVID hit, the mayor basically created a fund to hire everyone to work in different half-day jobs every day, a half day, and you got a half-day pay just so you have some cash coming in. Well, mm. one of the sections that they created was the AMD crew. And, you know, this was 15 paid people that went out on a daily basis and hit all of the hard spots and started to clean up some of that stuff. So, you know, it, it's awesome. We, we still are, it's, it's bombarded when there's huge tsunamis or wave movements. The AMD yeah. comes back and it'll just completely barf itself all over one coast. <laughs> But I'm happy with the group that we've been working with because they've continued to keep going out and do this. Oh, and no. that's awesome. What I was going to say, like with that, do you find that there's, well, I don't know if there's any data or if you've, if you've collected or tried to measure it against that uh, with uh, the, the El Nino and Southern Oscillation, do you, do you see more plastic coming in? I guess, would it be El Nino years or La Nina years would push it, I guess, further out? La Nina. That would... sounds like a master's degree. I think that, you know, that's <laughs> very intelligent and Dialed in, and yes, there is a correlation. Do I have the data to back that up? No, but my working hypothesis is the following. We've noticed that the real driver for the mesoplastics coming to the beach is the same driver bringing sand. So, mm. so it, 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 it seems very easy that the areas that are taking the finest particulates of the sand and the coral bits and the crap from puffer fish and the whole story yeah. The microplastics and, and smaller mesoplastics are also getting cleaned up or picked up in these currents and being deposited on the beaches. So you, we don't, on the northern coast, there is not as much smaller microplastic debris and mesoplastic debris. We get larger AMD junk. Okay. Yeah. And the beaches, that's it's actually Rapa Nui, and, and it's so sad to say, has some of the most contaminated beaches in all of Chile. <laughs> and, and, and Rapa Nui is a beach, and I actually was talking to another archaeologist who excavated back there in 1989, and she had documented four or five pieces of microplastics. Wow. So it's already, it's in 1989, they're already, it's already starting, it's already starting, Yeah. and then by now, now the beach is at, and our calculation was, it has 0. .026, kilograms per square meter of microplastics. So it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a huge number, but it's definitely a number on the increase. Yeah, but considering uh, that Rapa Nui is, it's, it's, it's an island in the middle of the, or not in the middle, but you know what I'm saying? It's like this little it, tiny island in the Pacific Ocean. Like you wouldn't imagine but, there being that much microplastics yeah. being there. But think about it. It's not the location, it's what the currents can bring to you. Yeah. So yeah. We, we've got to, we've got to go macro here and realize that the, the five gyres that we know in the ocean, Rapa Nui is right on the tail end of one of these. And so it's like, it's, we're, we're basically, you remember Armageddon and they're like, right. oh, we're stuck in the tail of the comet. And that's what's getting <laughs> on us. Well, Rapa Nui is stuck in the tail end of this. Okay, so and are you getting a lot of it, I guess, on the on the southern, more east or west? Nor northern, the northern portion, okay. because that's on that's the leeward side compared to, you know, the windward side. <laughs> that's more beat up and it's gone through much, you know, different types of erosion processes. 
and the AMD doesn't seem to have the same sort of place to land. Okay. So, yeah. but again, okay. these are things we're working on, and we're we're trying to see the trajectory of these of these sort of pieces. You know. No, I um, think I think but, ocean gyres are are amazing. I mean, because yeah, it's it's always hard. Yeah. So you're it's more just as a, a frame of reference, like what degree south latitude is Rapa Nui on? Twenty seven by one oh nine. Okay, so you're 20, 20, so we're 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 trop we're subtropical. We're not a tropical island. That's what a lot of people need to realize about Rapa Nui. It's not tropical. We're actually out of the the tropics there, and that's important because we're cold. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have the typical barrier reef that a lot of Polynesians have, and that's one of the things that the Rapa Nui people why they were so adaptive is because they were just coming from islands that had huge pearl shells and warm waters and huge biodiversity, and they get to Rapa Nui and they're like, holy shit, well, <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Well, sitting there, but they still mm-hmm. found a way to adapt and, and create 25,000 archaeological features. Yeah, so and, but that's, it and it's also the, I guess, because all the, the gyres, gyres, however, I know, me and Brian, we say all of our words differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, you wouldn't you wouldn't have those if you weren't in the subtropic, because they're actually what the, they're called the subtropic gyres. Yep. That, that's it. Without it, without it, there's no environment, there's no climate. Without that movement, it doesn't exist. But it's just Rapa Nui, again, as it, as it always is, it's just found in this really unique, weird position. Yeah, and I, I find that, it fascinating. It's, it's, it's being bombarded, but I think that just, just to keep thinking about it, there's the macro and micro pollution. We know the majority of cigarette butts were local Chilean cigarettes. We know our habits on the island, 15% were due to us living there. That's yeah. not tragedy of the commons. That's not you know practicing good environmental stewardship. So we end up filling up tons of Gatorade bottles and Coke bottles and filled up, you know, 8,000 small cigarette butts in here for this visual impact. And, you know, when I, I have, when I have, if you've seen the lecture, I think I put up this picture of all the cans and, and bottles we just filled up. So easiest thing there, don't be a butthead, you know, <laughs> put up cigarette butt, uh, you know, there's these you know, the really nice ones that you basically, everyone can chuck out there. You, you, what I know they do in Thailand, they have these and then put big eyes on top of them. Eyes, eyes that someone's looking at you, someone's watching you. And I guess they did a study that showed 80% of the time when people or 70% of the time when they're under this look of the garbage and they're doing that, they'll go and throw it away because they feel someone's watching them. <laughs> yeah. So well, our, not- our habits are different, you know? And yeah, I think that that's really awesome you're doing that cleanup there. And to me, that's, it's a boost of morale on the island. And you, you're taking Mama Piro. She, she had an emotional attachment. It was the right thing to do. And so I think that that inspired me. Like, James, I'm going to call on you right now that we're going down to the coast of Texas for a coastal cleanup month. I'm in. I'll, I'll show up in my, my, my new outfitted minivan. I'm <laughs> all right. <laughs> let's do it. A podcast from the field. Let's do a, let's do a field podcast. So here. I, I'm, I'm, on I'm the, so rocks, down. On the rock, dude. Dude, <laughs> on the rocks, on the rocks. Yeah, no, this thing is mobile. All I need is just like yeah. a power outlet. <laughs> no, I, I think it's perfect. I think we need to do it. And I, I just, I think that it, what it spoke to me was everyone has a place in this. We, we are a collective for a community. And what you saw there, you saw the community come together they were able to remember like literally bring back ancestors to the conversation and make it an not a time-based thing anymore that everyone was a collective and i think that's where 
the general thought needs to go on the ocean cleanup. So yeah, I'm down September. I'm there. Yeah. Yeah, second September. That third, third week there, third weekend. But cool. something to, you, you know, something else we can do and not thinking about the plastic directly is just our consumption habits. So yes. I'm talking about these nets. Well, Rapa Nui is basically in this, although it's depauperate, it doesn't have high biodiversity. It does have large schooling fish pelagic species that push through that area, tunas and huge tunas. So what happens a lot of time is illegal fishing on Rapa Nui. So what happens is both, and we can see them coming in and out of the night. And, you know, this was a real issue for for the island. Um, And then the typical thing is once they were caught or seen by the limited sort of Navy presence that's on the island, they would pretend one of their crew members were sick and they were coming into port to bring it to the hospital. And this has happened multiple times. And then these groups come in and they are found to be completely ravaging. And they'll basically, they're clever. A lot of them will stay on the EEZ, the exclusive economic zone, the EEZ. But a lot of them, they do, and this is your idea of ghost fishing, but this is just called skipping, where they will come into the EEZ and they'll turn off their beacon. Yeah. They'll turn off their light. And mm-hmm. you'll see them, you know, now that we have different things like the AIS and Sky Truth, which is this this very large monitoring system, you can actually see where these ships start doing zigzag. Uh-huh. And you know, the only they're not going, they're not doing a straight transit route going from you know Valparaiso in Chile or maybe Punta Mons in the south and going to China or vice versa. These are groups that are specifically going through Rapa Nui's very fertile EEZ. Well, it's not fertile; it's just very diverse and it has large population of Yeah. So, which was great is that now. You can go online. This is through Pew's work, um, the, the Charitable Trust Pew, double-edged sword they are. But they still produce they still produce data, and you can actually see where illegal fishing is happening. And if you look, usually on Rapa Nui, you'll see the light, see the pulsing. You know that some activity is going there. But groups are trying to break down illegal fishing. They're, they're doing as best as they can. Ecuador is getting a new shipment to look around the Galapagos. You've got Chile, who's also been based in their, their Navy for many years, is pushing farther out. And it's usually sort of more Asian fishermen that are, are coming into these, you know, non-easy areas and they're they're completely... But what did Rob, what did Chile do? Boom. Well, if you, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to put in a marine reserve. Oh, yeah. I read about right that. Mm. Or not yeah, read about it, but you, you were, in your talk, it was that... Uh, uh, that designated space, I wanted to ask you, so it's not <laughs> like, feel like you're just going on. I was like, do you feel like, uh, I know that they did build that 286,000, was it square yeah. miles or meters? Square miles. Yep. Yep. Square miles. Like, so did, do you feel like that has shown any, the, the positive effects from that? Like you were just saying. Yes, there, there has been some early positive effects. They're seeing increases in lobster size in the last two years, which is good. Mm, that is good. Some protection. There, there was a, a fear that the lobster stocks were going down. Now, the the difficulty comes into managing and protecting it. Yeah. Now, Chile, you know, you got to realize this is a huge area. This would be basically that I think three or four times the size of Texas. And I know Texas is a big ass state, so that's <laughs> but um, what, what, what the Rapa Nui people want to do is to protect it themselves 
is to, and this is awesome, bring back ancestral navigation. So they want to have their double hull outrigger canoes, the typical canoes, and they do little missions between there and what we call um, Motu Motiro Hiva or Salas and Gomez. And the oral tradition says Rapa Nui people went there to get turtles and fish and come back for birds and so forth. So Chile does what it can. It might send us spotting plane up once a month. Yeah. It has two a little ship called the Tokidao, which means the wind, and it can go on small patrols, but there's so much stuff slipping through the night. I mean, I've been camping, and I've counted three or four liners that just go right through the EEZ, Man. and I doubt that, it, and they're definitely fishing. This makes me yeah, sad. Yeah, no, it's safe. It's there. It's, it's, it's sad, but we're aware of the problem and that's how it starts. Suggestions, not criticism, not pointing fingers at production and consumption yet. You know, th- those are things we've got to address and we, we could talk about that in a hot minute. But I just want to finish up this last bit about I was we, we talked in the last story or last cast about how I study the geochemistry of basalt. So I can better see the movement and so-called trade of, of this stone on the island in prehistory. Well, what I'm doing now is I'm doing provenance analysis or fingerprinting studies with the AMD that I've found. Wow. I now have a fire, a file with photos. And one of my favorite ones here is I have something from New, the New South Wales Fishing Market Authority. It's it's a crate we receive quite frequently in the island in pieces. And it says, unauthorized users are liable for, pres- for prosecution. Or I get the favorite, this is from a New Zealand company called Skeg's Food. And it's, it's a bin, a chunk of a bin that says, stolen from Skeg's Food, return. Well, we would like to return this stuff to you, but you've thrown it in the ocean as a piece of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the largest piece that I've found with my own hands is a buoy that comes straight from Taiwan, and I have all of the identification numbers. We, I get, I, I have a whole bag of toys. I toys. have the, the most random toys I have found. I found King Kong. <laughs> I have found army figures, army, army. I, the coolest story I have is I was on the South Coast with a little kid who's working with me. And I lift the rock up and he goes and digs his little hands in there because he's got the perfect little, you know, little, little claws. Yeah. <laughs> he, he finds this huge tire from a truck. Wow. I, go, I go six meters away on the other side and I dig up the front part of the fucking truck. Excuse me. What? The front. <laughs> oh my goodness. How, wow. it, and it's a toy company and you know, if it, 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 it's more visual, you know, I'll, I'll send you some pictures you can for your files, but it's, it's just so wild, you know, of, of how it, but at the end of the day, we build our community, you know, we're, we're building up our, our understanding. Um, we've had meetings with even the president of, of Chile was with our, our president of Karada, and we created a Moai out of this microplastic, out of this mesoplastic. Oh, um, we named it the Conscious Moai. Right now, there's a that mo- there's a model of it that is sitting at the beach at Owake, so yeah. divers can go down there and look at it. Um, and we gave this to the president of Chile, and it's it's basically a piece of resin, a resin cast that we use the AMD that the kids cleaned up. Uh, we've done outreach events. We've done uh, everything we possibly can to get people motivated, but the town takes care of itself and they're yeah. entrepreneurs. So one of my favorite things is that people started to cast little Moai keychains. See, that's... <laughs> as, 
it's, it's tourist material. So if you know about how the island has changed with its curio market, you know, it used to start by selling wood of very high quality, this, this sort of miru, this wood uh, that you can't really find anymore. And it made the artifact worth $10,000 worth more. Yeah. And then once the material went down, then they went to the stone of the island that they could use. And then the laws came in that you couldn't use certain stone. And then they started to use trees that were planted. Well, now they're using plastic. So as we go back to this idea about evolution through time and my ceramic example, well, Rapa Nui people are finding a use for it. Yes. But we have to be careful touching it. These things can absorb a lot of, uh, of materials. I think much more biochemical research needs to be done of AMDs. Mm. You can use things like Fourier transform infrared uh, specs, which are great because then we can actually see what's in these materials and, and realize like I, I had a big fight with one company there that they were making all the kids use their hands to clean up this. And I was like, please stop. You know, and everyone's looking at me. I'm supposed to be the expert always to keep my cool. And I'm <laughs> like, listen, this is the last time I'm telling everybody, put on your gloves. Yeah. You know, like this is dangerous stuff we're playing with. Do not touch your lips. Don't touch your face. Go in the process of cleaning it up. Go directly to it and then clean off your hands when you're done. If you if you you take a break, but don't go directly into this plastic. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, and it's already in that 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 state of breaking down as well. Because what what is it like the uh, what was I saying to you earlier, Brian, about how I think in most humans in their urine, like we have like PCBs. Yeah, like ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, like almost ninety eight percent of humans have and, that. And we don't know the long term implications of how that's going to affect us long term because i think there was a how we closed out season or season two kind of talking about how we don't know like they they think that maybe by like the year 2060 or 2050 like due to all these plastics and all inside of our body that that the male sperm how it affects the male sperm now oh right but like like it it, we could almost be like a sterile species due to this like yeah unintended consequences that we don't know about (laughs) well that's biomagnification too you know and that's something that goes to different tropic levels that can affect different and that's that's the classic story you know basically on Rapa Nui with us eating the plastic so you got the fish what they do is they're used to eating a certain blue you know a pellet that looks like they're their prey yeah but what happens this mesoplastic mimics this blue color so the yeah. fish thinking it is its prey eats the plastic it goes in its cook it's Kokoma, the intestine, then it goes into that stream. Maybe I decide to take a big chunk of, you know, we didn't clean the plastic well, and now I'm eating plastic. Yeah. So basically, it, 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 that is ecological thinking. And if we can go back to Silent Spring, where it was PVC yeah. at one time, now it's these PVCs, PCPs, all of these polycarbonate things that we're just throwing in there. But as again, let's go back to hope. So you, you, this, this thing is what we're coming to the end here is always about what can we do? Yeah. Well, there's, there's the classic, the three R's, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. I just would quickly like to talk about the seven R's. The most important R we all have in this day is refuse. That is the number one thing you can do every time you hear a beep at a supermarket, you refuse. Anytime someone says, do you need utensils? I refuse. Yeah. Um, anytime that you are given a chance to buy one or a six by the six, refuse the one. That, that, is, that is super. So think before you, you buy it. Do you need this? 
And then while you're there, refuse their gar- their bags, refuse any way to transport that in my car. I, I, you know, now I just keep, I let them put everything back into the, the cart and I just have Tupperware in my van and I load up all the Tupperware with the different stuff and I bring it in. Yeah. So th- there's an example. Number two, reduce, right? Mm-hmm. Reduce what you buy. Uh, reduce buying prime material. Regift. Regift is something we, we don't have a regift economy because we believe everything must be new. I think about the story of in, in old school where he's like, dude, I got you this bread maker. You know, but in all reality, that is exactly what you should be doing in a system and then buying him a new gift where you have something that maybe he would use. So Correct. don't don't buy a bread machine. Regift it. Recover. Recover as much carbon as you can in this life, planting the trees from your grass, using that compost so it enters the soil a little bit better, recover as much activity. The classic reuse, you know, I'm still using things from Boy Scouts, from a North Face product that I purchased because sometimes cheap's expensive and expenses cheap. Yeah. You know, reuse, repair. We've lost that. My dad's the last generation, so I'm 40. I'll be 43 this year. My dad's the generation of repairing everything. And I, I, I think that there was a little bit of a gap because we didn't have to repair. We can go out and buy something new. Yeah. You know, the prices were mm-hmm. coming down. You didn't have to always buy quality because you might, I still buy quality to this day. And mm. then recycle. So just to repeat, refuse, number one, go to. Reduce, regift, recover, reuse, repair, and recycle. That's a mindset. It's a, it's a mindset. And it's also about your life. You know, it's also about who you are as a person, about how thrifty one could be. So those, those are our seven R's. And then the other, the other important things, we have the seven R's and we have what's called the 10 ban list. The ban list has been made and in, institutionalized in a lot of sort of ecological groups and cleanup oriented cleanup groups that do this. Um, and it's interesting that the top 10 is the same, almost the same 10 that the California group found on the third uh, Saturday of, of September for their cleanup. So the top 10 that you must avoid at all times are ban list, drink bottles, caps, and lids immediately. Everyone should have your water bottle. If you're at a store where you have to have a drink, don't get the lid, don't get the straw, be careful. Drink like a fucking human. Right? Cigarette butt. That is something documented on the island. So I can confirm on my little microcosm, it is the number one thing. When you see a smoker and they start going into this whole thing about AMD and they care about it, the first thing you say is, you really want to help? Stop smoking, bro. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had brought up the classic seahorse holding the, the, the cotton bud stick. That's the number yeah. one. That's the number three thing on the list. Get those wax removal products. Warm up your ear have the wax come up, pay the $10 equipment charge and not $10 for a hundred, you know, your Q-tip. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, chips and sweet candy wrappers, buy bulk, go with a Tupperware, you know, avoid, avoid individual processing, um, sanitary applications. And this one's very hard because we, you know, we, this, this is, I talked to some females and they, they agree this is a very difficult one because the culture teaches them to for hygiene and for health to use a tampon one ago and that's it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, I mean, obviously there was a topic that was called, you were on the rag for a reason because you had a rag that you cleaned up and you, you know, just sort of like diapers as well, you know? So there, there, there are these sanit, and this, this is one of the hardest ones I'm struggling with because 
I understand the need to be sanitary, right? Yeah. right. But at the same time, is there a way that we can use more sustainable products? Ooh. The classic plastic bags. I'm, all, I'm just going through this list. The cutlery, uh, drink cups and cup lids. Uh, a, a huge one that seems a no-brainer is balloons and balloon sticks. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Stop with those little launches. That has to be banned immediately. There is no need for that. I mean, I understand they're done because of babies dying or, or a very emotional issue. And I, and I, I get it, but it, it's not worth it. There's animals dying. There's electrical damage that gets placed and, and so forth. And then the last attempt is food containers, including fast food packaging. God, so yeah. again, stay healthy, stay away from cigarettes, stay away from the fast food. And you're already going to, you know, uh, your impact. Oh, now, yeah. that's the 10 ban plastic list. I would just bring in another thing is scrub microbeads. Um, yeah. If you have X-Base products that use that, get rid of it immediately. Do not buy anything that has scrub beads. These are uh, a typical microplastic. Um, it's a nurdle. So it basically, once the soap has been washed out, those enter the stream uh, and go right into the waterways, beyond drains and, and whatnot. And those are the ones um, that actually the, the 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 plants they can't even take them out of it because they're so small, right? Like there's like once they're in, they're just they're in. <laughs> you need nano scrubbers, then you're going to need a whole other technology. You know that we're not even close to being there yet. No, um, but. You know, that that is a cultural change. Just, you know, we, we don't go to that. And I know some um, businesses are phasing off, you know, like Olay and, and Deep Clean. Some of these companies, they are, they're aware and they're, they're, they're trying to find more biodegradable sort of alternatives. Yeah. Now, if, oh, go ahead. Now, I, I just got two more slides here. Some just went through my mind. You know, the, so that, that's, that's your level. That's, that's our bottom up right? Our bottom up mm -hmm. approach. Exactly. That's me working up. Well, top down, you know, I talked a little bit about this is, is really lobbying for these extended producer responsibility laws or EPR laws that, you know, is, is a policy, someone studying policy. These are very important because it makes sure the producer is responsible um, logistically of this piece from the distribution of the product until its entry into the garbage stream or recycling stream. Yeah, exactly. And if we, if we find some random segs box, a fishing box that end up on Rapa Nui, we can find them. We, yeah. We've sent we've sent letters to Coca-Cola. We've sent kids letters asking for help. We know that the, the consumer has a power by what they buy, but governments can jump on that. They can also, uh, and there's, there's a lot of them that are out there. They're in different countries, so there's no unified one. So hopefully there may be like a more global sort of entity that, that works towards it. But the Rapa Nui people have done their own things too, you know. Um, you know, I, I, so you, you've got all these different things to do. It the Rapa Nui people have done great because they've created more recycling centers. They have, they, they we, you know, in Spanish there's a saying: "Tienes que sacar todo el jugo de algo." You have to squeeze out all the juice of something. Yeah. And the Rapa Nui people, we, we we found a way to do that. So what the first thing was done is that you know businesses would not give out plastic bags anymore. Businesses would only sell you bulk things. They wouldn't break things down in a smaller packaging. So yeah. it was, there was this, and, and they have to on an island like that because if there's small room for error and, 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 and then not to, not to mention social mobilization and what we can do as humans. And they've created sort of an environmental network on the island through Facebook and it links in a whole bunch of different uh, environmental groups that they come together, they debate, they elaborate. And then in the end of the day, you know, just to me, there's a concept in Polynesia and it's called 
Kaitia Kaititanga, which is a Maori concept that means you take care of the forest because the forest takes care of you. And it's a very mm-hmm. Polynesian way to look at our world. And I challenge your listeners, you, myself, everyone to practice a little bit of this. Go back to land tenureship, you know, go back to understanding why we have to protect it because the more we protect it, the more she's going to protect you know, t- take care and protect us. No, absolutely. So, yeah, that's powerful. So just my points of emphasis is to wrap up, right, is that, you know, everyone, that there's top-down, bottom-up strategies. We can use both of them to solve this problem, right? There's certain models that are out there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel because people have been studying now for some time. There are protocols that are out there for better understanding how to quantify and qualify this this AMB. There's more global awareness, something that is good. People are, are aware um, but you still have to do your part. So practice those seminars, be aware of the ban list, stay away from those type of plastics in any situation and, and just find, go back, fall in love again with, with mother nature because she's a really beautiful thing. Well said, yeah. sir. Hold on. That's Let me... awesome. There you go. <laughs> hey, that was really good. Yeah. We did it in less than two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're yeah. close. We're close. I got you got got a few minutes for some comments here, but I knew we were gonna. I knew once we start talking, the three of us, it seems we can't stop. No, yeah, no, and, and we could we could keep going off on on tangents. So I'm glad that you had the you, you kept you kept the blinders on for us this time. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys are excited. <laughs> I, I really like this idea of, of September. Yeah, and, you, and even if you do something through through school or or, or through our entities there and you know and and say you know you, you've got to with these cleanups you've got to have a, a hook so maybe we say we're going to try to have the largest cleanup of people wearing red socks or your colors oh are yeah oh, right okay. so it's, you're, you're, it's all about game theory i all of my stuff is about game theory when i run my outreach programs and all the stuff i do but the whole premise is you make people earn their levels you make people level up right That's... so we can we can have people have different levels with this cleanup how much do they do they get who gets the most cleanup you know you incentivize but at the end of the day we all come together as a team we have our field we have our food in the field we look at that environment we're working in we breathe in that air we understand the importance of our of our environment so yeah, let, let's do it let's organize yeah. for September I'll, I'll drive the, the van down there and we'll, we'll, we'll start a new area you know See, that would be the that would be the coolest thing in the world because like uh so lastly like I, I wrote in here educational programs right because I I saw it like in in one of your speeches that you gave that it's like a tactile experience right you go out in the field and you do these type of things right and that's and that's really kind of the idea for like where I'm studying with my PhD and it's kind of this place-based education it's like you're, you're living it you to on the island you know that's and that's so great but like here being landlocked like we really don't have that and i it, and it, it's not that it's an excuse but you know on what is it tomorrow i'm we're giving a, a talk on place-based learning with this this program but what reminds me is like one of my students right so i teach an oceanography course and take one thing that we've talked about in the class and well how can we how is it applicable to your life and how can we make a change right kind of to give it a real world kind of thing. And one of her ideas was actually she wanted, she wrote, uh, and, and I'm, and I'm part of this group called the Marine Creek land scholars. Right. And it's, uh, it's, it's this, it's this model kind of program that we take these, uh, high school students and we've partnered with them being the college to do this, uh, you know, environmental awareness. We do stuff with the, the Texas park and wildlife where they go out and they do bio, you know, bio, like they, they measure the, the fish populations. Uh, we're, we're working on restoring like restorative, uh, prairie practices. So like we're having, 
having them yep. do this uh, whole research project that, that that's their own, and we're evaluating like these seed bombs that we go out. So they're working on it, doing that stuff. But it was really cool seeing uh, the practice of it and hearing that with you know the cleanup and the students like reaching them. You know, kind of gives us hope that that there is there is a future. It's not just like we're not just spinning our wheels. So sure, and I think uh, that's great. And congratulations on that type of learning. You know, whether it be place based pedagogy or citizen science approaches, both have shown to, you know, obviously have much more success through different metrics of retention and learning and objectives. They are are the best way. You know, I I always say classrooms are four walls that can't talk. Um, But but once you bust out of there, you you, you have a chance. And and I've done that. But the problem on Rob and me working in the beach is all these damn kids start making sand angels. They just sit back and they're, I know they're done working for the day because they just lay back and start making these sand angels. So I just call it and say, yep. Yep. Okay. That's enough. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. I get it. You guys are done. There's your two hours. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming out. Oh man. But, you know, I'm going to, we're going to think about it. Do it. Let's because suggest one with your group. We'll, we'll take a similar methodology that sort of archeological technique. We'll, we'll lay off an area, maybe, you know, 20 meters by 20 meters. We'll, we'll do a surface collection and we'll, we'll calculate what is the AMD percentage per area in this specific bit of Texas or wherever you want to go. I mean, we can quantify all the data and then we can maybe, you know, you go back in two years and do it again in 10 years and you see if there's an increased decrease. I like and that's, it. that's kind of long-term science. And then you get the community involved and now you're doing citizen science. It's not just you know, learning based or space based learning or, or this, you know, sort of in-house learning, um, you're bringing the community in. And now that is, that is the key of bottom up outreach is that right there. You didn't have the government come in. There's no grants. It's you saying, Hey, everyone, this is the volunteer day. Hey, everyone, this, hey, we're looking for these resources. Hey, is there any local sponsors? And then the next thing you know, you can do this without the government saying, all right, we're set. And, and it's not a bad thing. You've got sometimes the government come in with big funds or larger infrastructure or, or boats or et cetera. And then you can, you can attack a larger macro finger of the problem. But, you know, it's just, it's just changing your strategy, cha- changing what, where you're at. And it'd be cool to do it in Texas and see what's up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You inspire me. Do so much more. This is great. I'm going to sign off here. It's been a great two hours. I thank you. So honored to be the the first first guest and the first second first guest. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. So best of luck on all your adventures and your your work. And I I hope, you know, in a little bit, I can come back with some updates and and some some future information. Absolutely. And we'll keep you updated. Cool. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Dale. Dale. No worries. Well, I will just, I know you guys got a little more to film. I'd say you're a little more to tape, but best of luck on that. Uh, This is, uh, Dr. Dale Simpson signing off. Uh, thank you very much. This this podcast fucking rocks, Woo. and I give it I give it I give it five rock stars. So all right, so awesome. Well, we appreciate it. The man, the myth, the legend. One more time for Mr. <laughs> Dale Simpson. Woo! <laughs> Shake it, guys. We'll, we'll all right, thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Dude, he's so good. That was that was the best one yet. Yeah, I uh, I wish I could. Talk like him. I, know, I feel like too. I get, I go, I get it all. Like I'm like all. <laughs> he's just like do 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 do. Like everything is like he's an expert. I had no idea he was even in this. 
like subject like god oh yeah it's so all right well we did things a little differently but uh shall we do a little bit of nope (laughs) (laughs) mineral 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 minutes minerals all right well on to a new season of mineral minute and this season is the ooh series if you remember so so this week's mineral is brought to you by the copper iron sulfide mui hokite <laughs> mui hokite has a chemical formula of cu9 fe9 s 16. Yes, and Mui Hokite has a metallic luster and streaks black. The mineral has a hardness of 4 and a specific gravity of 4.36 measured. Yeah, and it, it, it has a short optical C-axis that is perpendicular to two longer A-axis and equal length. For Mui Hokite, the... Am I even saying that right? <laughs> Mui Hokite. <laughs> so the axis is a fourfold roto-inversion <laughs> axis. It is found in massive sulfide deposits from pipe-shaped dunite pegmatite uh, in the norite zone of the Bushveld igneous complex in South Africa. Yeah, and Mui Hokite is an opaque mineral which shows weak anitropism in the in polished sections under reflected light that goes slightly extinct every 90 degrees. Mui Hokite occurs in association with a <laughs> cockite. Hey. Hey, <laughs> cockite. Uh, magnetite, troilite, cuprin. Macanawite, Phalarite, and Monkite in the Mook mine, and with a cockite, native copper, troilite, petlandite, cubanite, and magnetite in the Duluth complex in Minnesota. Yeah, so this mineral is, a gra- is granular, generally occurring as anhedral to subhedral crystals in matrix and is pale yellow, which tarnishes to pinkish brown and purple. Buihokite is part of the tetragonal crystal system and the scalahedron 4-2-M crystal class. Buihokite also occurs with fakeokite, hey. native <laughs> copper, troilite, cubanite, and magnetite in the Duluth complex. As I said before, but... Hey, cockeye. Hey. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week's mineral, fruitite. Oh, yeah. Or is it? F- yeah, it's fruitite. Mineral. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. And that brings us um, straight into, well, I guess that was a pretty awesome episode that we had with Dale. And hopefully yeah. uh, there was a lot of information Inspiring, there. Right? Yeah. I know it really was. I'm probably going to. I mean, just get into his stuff because, I mean, there's so much we didn't even talk about. I think that I really liked that he just, he showed, he showed things that I didn't know were happening. Yeah. And, and that, that hope side of it, it kind of repositioned my mind in how I think about this. Cause like, I think I brought it up earlier. Like so often as scientists, we, we sit here and we condemn, but that's, that's like the extent of it. Now I'm like, well, that only does so much. Like let's go do something. And I, I think about that, like in, our own research um, it's we're doing things but there's 
like, what are we doing for tomorrow? You know, oh, what I mean? yeah, like absolutely. But it, so. it, it kind of brings me back to what we were trying to what at the at the end of season one, you know how we were kind of talking about, oh, well, let's do like this, uh, you know, like twice a year. Let's do like this cleanup to use kind of this platform to to, I guess, get some build something other than just talking about it. Like, let's go out into the community and do something about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like, so, and then you bring so up a good September. idea of going to the beach to actually do a cleanup. And now we have a date. So the... I said third. Okay, third. But, but I, have it, I had it pulled up. Um, it is September 8th, old Germany. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But September, yeah. September, we're going to do, a, we're yeah. going to go to the beach and do an episode beach cleanup. Heck yeah. Hell yeah. That's going to be awesome. I, I'm just, wow. That was that was awesome. He always does such a good job. I know. That's amazing. Good I'm job. inspired. Good job, Dale. You you, in, you inspired us to do better by your palabras. His words. <laughs> but yeah, man. Uh, we started out with a stumble in your your bad connection. I'm, but I don't but, know what that was about. It was so weird. Because I've, I've, the last time we did a phone recorded podcast, I didn't write in that spot. Yeah, that's... So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then there was just, you were just. That was because I was having to like, care. I didn't mute it. And I was carrying my computer, all this stuff. Through like these glass I was like, doors that I had to like unlock with a key card. It was terrible. Yeah. It was awful. Dude. <laughs> but it is what it is. And I guess we'll close things out. So I think next week we have uh, war in geology. I'm unsure how it will go, but I'm sure it'll be great. And yeah. Well, then, until next week, I guess we'll remind you to be cool. Stay tuned. <laughs> and keep it on... On the rocks. rocks. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, anyways. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Like, I feel like we... what? So, we haven't recorded for, like, three weeks, and then we're just yeah, like, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> well, we weren't in person. Yeah. We have grown yeah. custom to that. Next time. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Episode 26 in the books.